This morning I'm going to read some selected passages from the Word of God. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Where there is pride, there is strife, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. This is the word of the Lord. I really appreciate creativity, but I got to be honest, I can't wait till that thing's over. <laughs> I'm just getting tired of it, really. Um, first, I just want to say thank you to Braden Wisely. He's a kid who's grown up in this church, our, uh, our wonderful musician, and also his friend Teddy for coming. Uh, so thank you, guys. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. So, uh, Braden, you're a senior, right? And uh, probably off to Jacob School of Music or something after that. Teddy, what's your status in school? You're a junior. Okay, you both look like you're already freshmen in college. So, anyway, thanks for blessing us with that music. We really appreciate it. Um, the topic this morning is pride and humility. Um, before each sermon... Um, I uh, have a couple of elders who are gracious enough to come in and pray for me because I need it and because there might be benefit from you for you in me praying with the elders before I stand here to preach. I mentioned to them this morning uh, what the topic was, as I always do, and uh, mentioned how it was a difficult topic to address when you realize that you yourself are so filled with pride and so absent of humility. Um, and the humorous suggestion was that I should just start out the sermon by saying, of all my great attributes, humility is the greatest. So there you go. Um, Now that you know that's not true, let's begin um, and think about humility uh, and pride. What is characteristic of the Christian tradition, among many other things, is to try to kind of find what you might call the source of all sin. You've heard that spoken of before. What's the root of all sin? And I think more than any other we have heard in the history of Christian theology that pride is the root of all sin. 
whether that come from theological popular luminaries like Calvin or C.S. Lewis or Augustine. You hear it over and over again, and I think for good reason, because it does seem that pride is at the basis of all our sin. Why? Well, because, quite frankly, our biggest problem is ourself. Not the world out there, not the sin of others, but us. We're our biggest problem. And our biggest problem is to be selfish, self-centered, and turned inward. Can you think of a more articulate definition of pride than that? Self-centered and turned inward? That's why it seems that pride is the baseline of all sin. There's something else that's interesting about pride and its opposite, humility. In the Proverbs, pride and humility are linked this way. The Proverbs associates wisdom with humility and pride with foolishness. That's your hermeneutic for pride and humility in the book of Proverbs. Pride, fools. Humility, wise. It's just about that simple, says Proverbs. Here's what we know concerning the baseline of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. The very beginning of the book of Proverbs, we hear this very famous phrase that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You may not remember however many weeks ago it was when we began this series that I said when you look at the book of Proverbs, you may notice that knowledge and wisdom are linked. So when you hear knowledge in the book of Proverbs, it refers to wisdom-based knowledge. So at the very beginning of the book, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. I wonder why. Why is this true? I believe the reason it's true, played out by the book of Proverbs in chapter 3, verse 7, and in other places, is the admonition to everyone to not be wise in your own eyes, but instead to fear the Lord and turn from evil. That's Proverbs 3, 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Instead, fear the Lord and turn from evil. Let's put it another way. The proverb is saying, instead of following your own instincts and intuitions and your own wisdom concerning the reality that you live in, instead of that, follow God and his wisdom. Why? Because 
no matter how pretentious you are about your own humility, which is an irony in itself, no matter how certain you are concerning your own morality and what is right and what is wrong, your wisdom is inherently tainted. Your wisdom is inherently tainted by selfishness. There's no way around it. You cannot be perfectly pure. You cannot make perfect judgments. You cannot, under any circumstance, always be wise and correct. As a matter of fact, you need to fear the Lord, says the proverb, and follow Him. You need to believe at the very outset that you are not the center of your own moral universe and that God is the center of your moral universe. And that there will be numerous occasions where God calls you to follow him in such a way that may seem counterintuitive, countercultural, and against self itself. And the proverb says, that's why you need to fear God. Fear God and listen to God's wisdom. And thus have life. That was all by way of introduction. What I want to do now is to break up pride and humility. From the Proverbs and other passages of Scripture. And I want to give an overview of what are the characteristics of pride. Probably this proverb is the most well-known as it relates to pride. You probably could quote it with me. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You've heard that numerous times. And it's true. But let me remind you of something. This proverb is not simply addressing the idea that if you're prideful, God is going to humble you and punish you. It does mean that. But there's something else going on here. It's this. The natural consequence of pride is destruction. The natural consequence of haughtiness is destruction. In other words, apart from God's proactive judgment, you can't get away with it. You can't live overwhelmed by pride because pride is actually going to punish you. Pride has its own baked-in form of judgment. It judges you. And why is this true? Because those who are prideful cannot or will not be self-critical. As a matter of fact, if you are overwhelmed by pride, you are not able to be self-critical. Because you're so prideful, everything's about you, and you must have all knowledge and wisdom. When you're overwhelmed by pride, 
you're not self-critical, and you cannot, you can't accept the correction of others. If you believe that you are full of unparalleled wisdom, then there is no wisdom that can enter your world because you've got it all. And that will destroy you. A second characteristic of pride is this. Prideful people are those who believe only what is right for themselves. In other words, they base their ethic on selfish motivation. They don't allow God to dictate what is good for them. They define what's best for them. And when they find that, what they consider to be best for them, in God's advice, think the Proverbs, they follow it to the T. Why? Because of selfish motivation. It's a refusal to listen to others. It is, in its highest form, a, an unbelievable form of arrogance to select and choose what benefits me and then call it morality and wisdom. Even if my selection comes from the wisdom of the Proverbs. That is not what the Proverbs are for. For you to cherry pick in order to construct your own morality and ethic. That is the statement of pride. As a matter of fact, when you construct your own singular morality and ethic, apart from the commands of God, which sometimes seem onerous, when you do that, you're violating the greatest commandment of Scripture. To love God and to love others. Because it's become all about you. There's a third characteristic of pride. And it's this. Sounds like a contradiction of what I just said in a way, but it's not. The proud, according to the Proverbs, will be punished by God. To put it in the words of 16.5 of the Proverbs, the arrogant in heart will not go unpunished. Do you want to receive the punishment of God? If you have that kind of death wish, I have a remedy for you. Be full of pride. And if you're full of pride, you'll be punished by God. There's a remarkable story in the Old Testament that relates not so much to a, a God follower as what is often called a pagan king. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? If you want to read it, afterwards it's in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. He had everything. He had a gigantic empire. And he loved his empire and his power. And his money. And it's said that King Nebuchadnezzar was looking from his palace or his walls over the whole realm of his kingdom. And he said, look at this. Look at what I have created. 
This is amazing. I am amazing. And the story goes that God struck him with foolishness. As a matter of fact, God drove him from the presence of people who were rational beings to live in the wild as a creature of the wild. His nails grew long. Hair was all over his body as if he were a beast. That's the description. The dew of the night hung upon him, the text says. All of this was a direct, proactive punishment by God of a foreign pagan king to bring him to his senses. At the end of it all, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and understands his overwhelming pride. And he makes this statement. I, Nebuchadnezzar, now praise, extol, and honor the Lord. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He has humbled me, said Nebuchadnezzar. I was the top of my game. I was at the top of the world. And God just brought me down. God will punish the prideful. What are the characteristics of humility in the Proverbs and in the rest of Scripture? One characteristic of those who are humble is that those who are humble and wise, you remember the connection between humility and wisdom, those who are humble and wise, they listen to other people. Or to put it in the words of chapter 12, verse 15 in Proverbs, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. The humble, what is their characteristic? To listen to others. To listen to others. I, I say it that way because I want to emphasize the simplicity of it. To listen to others. There's nothing there that suggests that you listen to others when they're your friends, but not your enemies. There's nothing there to suggest that you listen to others when they lavish praise on you, but not when they lavish criticism on you. It's simple. You listen to others. And when you do, you find wisdom. Not because every word of the other is perfectly wise, but because every word of the other comes outside of your head. The word of the other is not you. It's someone else. And there's wisdom in listening to the other. Second characteristic of those who are humble is that they're self-critical. That is, they understand their own sin. It's always characteristic of the humble to understand 
his or her own sin and to be self-critical of himself or herself. A third characteristic of the humble, according to the Proverbs and the entire Old Testament and New Testament, is that the humble are forgiving because they've been forgiven. To whom much is forgiven, much forgiveness ought to be offered to the other. There's parables of Jesus that reinforce this. There's Proverbs all over the Scripture and all over the Old Testament that reinforce this. If you've been forgiven much, you ought to reflect on it and forgive others. Let's put it another way. If you're humble, you must forgive. A fourth characteristic of humility, those who are humble are those who will be exalted by God. Or to put it in the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. Those who are humble and meek, they'll inherit the earth. That's, that's an eschatological statement in and of itself. It's when it's all over, when it's all wrapped up, when everything is the way it ought to be, those who are humble and meek will be at the side of God in his kingdom, in the peaceable kingdom, and they will inherit the renewed earth that God is going to make. That's a characteristic of the humble. A final characteristic of the humble I want to mention is that they acknowledge the existence of an invisible God. You might think that comment to be odd, but it's really not. It takes great humility, great humility, to look around your world and to see the material reality and add up the equations that allow for you to have success or not and to look at individuals and size them up and to see what they can do for you. And the list goes on and on and on. It's easy in that world to believe in the material only that the reality, the reality of living a wonderful, successful life is right in front of you. But the scriptures routinely teach us that those who are humble actually bow the knee to an invisible God. One that others cannot see. One that they cannot see. And one that the skeptics scoff at and thus scoff at you. Humility means to bow before an invisible God. To believe that God exists is an act of humility. And to believe that his wisdom is far beyond yours. And thus he's authoritative. And to believe that no matter what, you will follow an invisible God. That's an act of humility, my friends. So I end with this. Instructions for humility. You might say, in a typical American way, what are the steps to humility? Uh, don't. That's a horrible way to approach it. 
but it's our inclination. So I've called it instructions for humility, which if you're a critic, you might say, ah, you're just saying the same thing. Whatever, that's okay. First instruction towards humility is to become a Christ follower, not just a believer. Remember the words of uh, the epistle of James? James, in effect, I paraphrase, says, I don't really care about your belief. I really don't care about your faith. The devils have faith. Or the devils believe. But what difference does it make? What I want to see is a faith. A faith that's different. A faith that means you're following Jesus Christ. Let me say something about pathways to Christ. There are many ways that people come to faith in Christ. Sometimes through crisis. Sometimes through a still small voice. Sometimes when somebody lays out for them the plan of salvation. But there are other times that people come to faith in Christ because first they start to follow Christ before they believe. I mentioned more than a month ago that a friend of mine who does campus ministry said to me, I've had to rethink the way I introduce people to Jesus. And he didn't mean to criticize some other method, because there's lots of methods. But he said, what, what I've become aware of is that when I introduce people to studying the Bible and studying Jesus and asking them if they want to join me in this study, without asking them to believe, what I find is that over time, as they study Jesus, they begin to follow. And then eventually, and this was his testimony, they say to me, oh my, I think I believe. I think I'm a Christian. Can I be baptized? For some, it does mean believing in a dramatic way and then following. For others, it means following and then believing. After all, who can look at Jesus? Even if you don't believe in who he is, who can look at Jesus without admiration and respect? Who can consider his life and not at some level want to be like him. I wonder sometimes if our greatest tool for evangelism has been overlooked. 
Not asking somebody to believe before they follow the author of life. But to follow this Jesus and then to be overwhelmed by belief that he's the Son of God. That was just number one in terms of instructions for humility. To remind you, the first instruction was become a Christ follower, not just a believer. Second is to commit your ways to the Lord. If you want to enter into humility, you need to commit your ways to the Lord. You know that famous proverb that relates to following God, that you commit your ways to the Lord and not lean on your own understanding and the Lord would direct your paths. It's a wonderful passage that we have all depended on at one time or another. And it's often viewed as as a prayer of guidance. And that's true. But it's more than that. That statement is an admission of dependence. It's saying to that invisible God, I don't have all wisdom. It's admitting to yourself and to others and to God that I don't always know what is right. It's being honest concerning your own inability to know what is the best direction. And when you get to that point, you have an opportunity to be humble, to fall to your knees before God and say, God, I do not understand, but I commit my ways to you. Will you make my path clear? Because I don't get it, God. I need your help. The attitude of humility often emerges out of crisis. Desperation. Deep loss. And out of those moments of crisis, often faith is born and people come to God. They drive us to moments of surrender. I've heard some people criticize that as if it's second-rate belief. I don't think it's second-rate belief. I think it's, it's humble belief. When you finally get to the point, whatever it is in your life, that you're ready to surrender, you got it. Crisis or no crisis. Maybe the admonition is before the crisis hits. Before you find yourself on your face, overwhelmed. Before that, have the wisdom to surrender to an all-wise God, admitting that you don't know. That is to be truly humble. A third instruction for humility is to remember your own sin. You know, we often think of confession as a confession to God or a confession to another. And that is true. But confession is also a reminder of forgiveness. When I confess, I remember my forgiveness through Christ my Lord. 
And when I remember my forgiveness through Christ my Lord, I'm not just reminded of my sin. I'm reminded of how I ought to forgive the other. You remember the story of Peter? He was driven by pride when Jesus challenged him and the others concerning how they were going to leave him alone in his moment of trial. Peter shouted out as Peter always did, Not me, Lord. I got your back. I'll be there to the end. And Jesus said to him, Peter, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. Three times, Peter. Peter, in his prideful moment, could not imagine it. We don't have the rest of what he said. He might have even challenged Jesus. But we know this. Before the rooster crowed the next morning, he denied Jesus three times. (laughs) I've often wondered about that. I often wondered whether or not every morning for the rest of his life in the agrarian culture that he lived in when he heard the rooster crow he said thank you God thank you Lord Jesus for forgiving me Paul put it this way, forgive one another just as God has forgiven you. I wonder, do you have a rooster crow in your life? Maybe you should find one. Maybe it's something you write on your wall. We all need a reminder that we've been forgiven. So we should forgive one another. And when we're reminded, we'll be humbled and pride will be far from us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for being patient with us. We are just so far off the mark. We're just so full of our own pride and self-will. It's just how we're wired, Lord. And our culture around us, it just continues to reinforce the idea that you push your way to the front of the crowd. You talk about yourself as though you're the only one who's got the answers. And you make decisions without listening to the criticism that is a gift and comes from others. And then we just routinely, we rely on our own wisdom and we're not humble enough to bow our knee 
in the presence of the invisible God and his word. So we pray, Lord, you will change our hearts. Make us new. Change our hearts, O oh God. May we be like you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.